G'day, you're listening to a sermon from Good News Christian Church. My name's Bernard. I'm the preacher and minister at Good News Christian Church. During this coronavirus pandemic, we're actually streaming, live streaming all of our church services. So after you've listened to this sermon, you might like to, on Sunday morning, Australian Eastern Standard Time, 9.30, get across to our YouTube channel and join us for a whole church service. It's never been easier to come to church. Anyway, for now, why not read the Bible readings that are written down in the description, uh, read those and then listen to this sermon and get in touch sometime. I'd love to hear how you go with it. Cheers. Luke chapter 20 and verse 19, uh, just going back one verse there to the section that we were looking at last week where we read, the teachers of the law and the chief priests looked for a way to arrest Jesus immediately because they knew he'd spoken this parable against them, but they were afraid of the people. Do you remember? And then verse 20, keeping a close watch on him, they sent spies who pretended to be sincere. They hoped to catch Jesus in something he said so that they might hand him over to the uh, power and authority of the governor. And so the spies questioned him. There's the setting. And make no mistake, there were people in this world who meant to bring about Jesus' downfall. I know we like to think the best of people, but there were people who got out of bed that morning and were going after Jesus to bring him down. That was their express purpose, to attack and to catch. If only they could find a way, if only they could find a little chink in the armour somewhere. But I think uh, more important and more primary is that God's word means to show us this morning, not the critics, but the character of Christ through this passage. Uh, You remember where we're up to in Luke's gospel? We're getting toward the end. uh, To show us God's intention here, to show us the character of Christ who will soon go the way of the cross. Why is that important? It's because I think when he gets there to the cross, be assured it will not be because he was outsmarted or that he was fooled or because he was bested or beaten somehow. It will not be because they proved too much and Jesus couldn't handle it. He wasn't enough for the world's wisdom. They proved to be more impressive and he just couldn't keep up. No, no. Will we see Jesus this morning as the one who bore the very, the truth of heaven in this world to a world of ignorance? Will we see him as the one who's qualified to lead us to God when all of the other guides around us in the world prove in the end to be fakes? Will we see him as the one who's equipped to show us how to live for God in a world that tries at times to be so godless and opposed to God's ways? Or will we tragically find ourselves on the side of the ones trying to catch Jesus out? May I make um, three short points for today? Firstly, he has our whole world in his hands, even the worldliness of the world, even the wandering and wayward, and in this passage especially, it comes out, the wicked world. He has the whole world in his hands. From verse 20, let's read again. Keeping a close watch on Jesus, they sent spies who pretended to be sincere. They hoped to catch Jesus in something he said so that they might hand him over to the power and authority of the governor. So the spies questioned him. Teacher, We know that you speak and teach what is right. (laughs) Yeah, right. And that you do not show partiality, but teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. 
is it right for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? He, as in Jesus, he saw through their duplicity and said to them, show me a denarius whose image and inscription are on it. It's like a, a, a coin, you understand? Caesar's, they replied. He said to them, then give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. They were unable to trap him in what he had said there in public and astonished by his answer, they became silent. Let's think on that for a moment. Friends, there are some Christians, and some amongst us actually, who, you know, in our modern day, could not bring ourselves to set foot inside of Mona, you know, the museum out at Berrydale, uh, some of us. Uh, there are some Christians who would feel morally obligated, I think, to avoid putting even a dollar into the machines across at the casino. Uh, there are some Christians who, some of us, who feel that it would be immoral to financially or otherwise support this or that political party. And interestingly enough, amongst Christians, you'll find them saying that of different political parties, won't you? And I'm not saying that those issues are the same as paying tax to Caesar, but I think there is a certain parallel in that whose kingdom are you trying to build, Jesus? Whose kingdom are you willing to put money and weight and force and effort behind? Because if you're willing to pay tax to Caesar, are you really going to support that hideous machine that keeps God's people oppressed, that stands opposed to God and his kingdom in the world? Are you going to do that, Jesus? Are you going to go on the record saying that? Unless you say no and loudly, then what kind of courageous prophet type are you? You're going to lose followers unless you say no and loudly, Jesus. But unless you say yes, clearly and plainly, you must pay tax to Caesar, then you can be sure that we'll let the Romans know your answer. Is it right for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not. Take your time, Jesus. We'll wait. Jesus didn't need time, did he? Um, Daryl Bock notices this really interesting little detail, which I don't think I'd have picked up on my own. Uh, Daryl Bock's a, a commentator on the book of Luke, and uh, he notices all sorts of wonderful things that I wouldn't have spotted. He, he notices this. How does Jesus begin his reply? Not, his, not Jesus' conclusion. How does Jesus begin his reply to these spies who are trying to trap him? What he does is he asks them to show him a coin. Did you notice that? That is, presumably, you have one in your pocket right now. Now, what's it doing there? You've got a coin in your pocket. What's it doing there? A coin that you intend to use and spend and enjoy the convenience of in this Roman Empire that you by implication, are saying that we must not support or play a part in. And Darrell Box puts it like this. He says, by producing this coin, they indicate that they carry on trade with it. They use these coins without blinking an eye. Thus, the question's edge is lost in their daily practice. It's interesting, isn't it? They live in the state and freely use its currency. So when Jesus says, then give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's, I think he's saying, sure, pay the tax. You've got to live in reality here. But isn't he more piercingly saying to them, but isn't it time that you 
O image bearer of the living God, isn't it time that you gave your whole life back to God? He has the whole world, even Caesar and his silly little coins. God has the whole world in his hands. But do you realise that means he has you in his hands? The real question is, are you going to start living like he's got your whole world in his hands? And may I say to his followers back in that day and to us, see, how are we supposed to hear that? I think, it's, I think it's this, Christian, do you live each day safe in the knowledge that God has this wondrous and yet wicked world securely in his hands? Do you know that? Do we remember that? It's not that we shouldn't care about the brokenness of our world. It's not that we shouldn't care about political issues and, you know, the great machines of oppression or or financial or business issues for that matter. It's not as if we shouldn't care about those and, and, and trade issues. It's not that we shouldn't care about what our money supports and how sometimes it can be, we can be hemmed in by the very structures of society so that our money ends up supporting exploitative things here, there and everywhere with fair trade and all of the rest of it on view, yes, but can we find some peace in the midst of all that? God has got the whole world and he's got you in his hands. Next cab off the rank, second point, do we also see and embrace that he has our lives in his hands? This is a distinct point, separate point. God's got the whole world in his hands, but God has your whole life in his hands. Through time, do you see? I think that's the issue beneath the question for the Sadducees. Uh, The Sadducees who believe that God, yes, sure, he has this life in his hands, but they didn't even believe there was an afterlife, period, the Sadducees. Um, Let's read from verse 26. Let's dive in there, verse 26 together. They uh, were unable to trap him, so the previous group, in what he had said there in public, and astonished by his answer, they became silent. Some of the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to Jesus with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers. The first one married a woman and died childless. The second, and then the third married her, and in the same way, the seven died, leaving no children. Finally, the woman died too. Now then, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be? I imagine their tone of voice was something like that. Since the seven were married to her, whose wife will she be? Could I just make an aside here? Uh, the, the law that they're referring to is in Deuteronomy chapter 25, um, and, uh, and they've understood the law rightly. Uh, so the Sadducees were interesting folks. They believed um, the first five books of the Bible, but they didn't take on the rest of the Bible, at least not as the word of God in the same way. So what Moses said for them, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, um, that was scripture. And so this was a real conundrum uh, for them. This was in the scriptures that they believed. Anyway, they've understood the law rightly, Deuteronomy chapter 25. Can I just say, um, for our ears, it probably sounds quite ghastly for that woman involved. Um, And I'd be very happy to talk about that more afterwards, although I think it would be quite a tangent um, for us in terms of understanding this passage. We might hear it as something quite ghastly for the woman, um, 
in context, we're talking about a legal binding on the brothers, actually. It doesn't talk about her um, uh, capacity to refuse marriage to any of those men. It's a, it's a law about what legally binds those men for the sake of that first couple and their future among the people of God into posterity. Um, happy to talk more about that later if you would like to and how that fits together with um, a biblical view of men and women and all of the rest. But from the lips of the Sadducees, do you see what it is? They're not concerned for the woman. Um, they're not concerned, I don't think, for the legal process particularly either. They're not concerned about the ethics of this whole framework. Do you see what it is? It's just proof positive that the afterlife is an absurd fiction that cannot be sustained by careful Bible-reading people. Right? So that's how they saw it. That was their tone of voice, don't you think? The resurrection life can't be real because who would she be married to? Do you see their logic? Jesus replied, verse 34, The people of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy of taking part in the age to come and in the resurrection from the dead, it will neither marry nor be given in marriage. And they can no longer die, for they're like the angels. They are God's children, since they're children of the resurrection. But in the account of the burning bush, notice how Jesus takes them back to Moses. But in the account of the burning bush, even Moses showed that the dead rise, for he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. For to him all are alive. Now, to our knowledge of uh, the history of Jesus' day, no one had kind of come up with that line before, before Jesus. Jesus knew things about the age to come that Israel's rabbis hadn't quite wrapped their heads around hadn't come up with satisfactory answers for. Jesus had insight into not only the, the future, but insight into the word of God as it was given already in black and white. He is the God of the living, not of the dead. Can't you see that? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. But friends, in our day, are we willing to hear this? Aren't there an awful lot of people maybe even amongst churches, maybe even amongst our church, who live like the Sadducees, as if the life to come, the age to come, and the resurrection life are but an absurd unreality. Are there some who live as if that were the truth? Friends, let us hear Jesus this morning. Yes, God has the whole world in his hands, but he has our whole lives in his hands, not just in this age, but in the one to come as well. And I say that to those for whom death seems fearsome and it seems near, whether for your own sake or for your loved ones. God has your life in his hands. But I also say it to those for whom death, it seems this distant unreality, hardly worth a second thought. Friends, let us be people who let our minds find rest in this truth. He is the God of the living, and to him all are alive. You live now in the hands of a God who sees your life 
in the perspective of eternity? Do we, do we see our lives that way? Which leads to our final point. Are we willing to be led by his hand? And as we move to this last section where the tables have turned and the, everyone stops asking Jesus questions and he now begins uh, to speak up, um, I think the point with Jesus' teaching here isn't in his answer. In fact, you'll notice, as we read it in just a moment, he doesn't give an answer to his own question. Uh, the point, rather, is this. We know where to turn with our sticky and tricky and troubling and heavy questions that weigh on our hearts and minds. Because Why? Because we know where to find life. We know where to find the, the fount of all truth and knowledge from heaven itself. We know where to find God. It's with Jesus. Luke chapter 20 and verse 39, some of the teachers of the law, in view of his argument with the Pharisees, responded, well said, teacher. And no one dared to ask him any more questions. Then Jesus said to them, why is it said that the Messiah is the son of David? David himself declares in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. David calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? While all the people were listening, Jesus said to his disciples, beware of the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and love to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honour at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. These men will be punished most severely. Now, with a passage like this, I, I feel that I ought to say at least once, perhaps there is someone here, like the religious leaders in Jesus' day, who kind of uses your philosophical questions, your theological conundrums, your perceived contradictions in the scriptures or whatever it is, like the Sadducees as they saw it. Do some of us hide behind those? use those as a smokescreen when we really should have acknowledged the reality that uh, long ago that Jesus is indeed Lord. Is that any of us here today? Now, you, you, you guys know me well enough. I'm not against questions. In fact, I love questions. I, I enjoy a good workout with the scriptures. I think it helps us to to know God better when we bring out our best questions in their best form to the scriptures and seek real answers. You guys know that I love questions, but occasionally I do think that they can be used as a bit of a smokescreen to coming to Jesus and engaging with him. My question this morning is, is that you? Because Jesus, and I, I do hope that you see this soon, he is the answer that you need, even if you haven't figured out all of the answers to all of the questions. May I be so bold as to say, perhaps today might be the day to let him be the Lord of your life and you can figure out some of the more answers to your questions as time goes on. But let's conclude instead with this. Brothers and sisters, is it fair to say, I think some of us, we beware and fear not the Lord himself in might and power and glory and wonder, Sometimes we beware the ones who tie us up with their questions. We're back where we began. 
I think we beware the ones who make us feel small or stupid, maybe not because they're trying to, but because we don't have the answers. And we don't know and we feel silly and perhaps ashamed as well at not being able to provide the answers. Or we do have the answers, but we can't get them out quickly enough or clearly enough or it takes us 20 minutes afterwards or three months and we feel ashamed about that. Brother, sister, this passage isn't saying you need to get better answers. It's saying that in Jesus, you've found the answer. You've found the one with the answers. Are we willing to cling to that? Turn to him in that He is the answer to life. He is the answer for our world. He isn't stumped or befuddled or baffled. It wasn't because he was too weak or confused that he went to the cross. He went to the cross to be the answer for us, to be the Lord and Saviour that we needed, the Messiah, the Son of David, the Lord himself, promised and appeared and mighty and sacrificed for us. Will you come to Jesus this morning?